0: Welcome to 10 Minute Theology, thinking rightly about God, scriptures, and the church, 10 minutes at a time, with Joel Wentz. More- My mantra in this podcast series for reading and respecting scripture has been this quote from Rene Girard, which I will read one more time. He said, it's a bad idea to condemn Holy Scripture hastily. When we feel like dismissing Scripture, we should watch out. Perhaps we are not at that moment up to what our task requires. I'm very much trying to live into that idea with this series by pulling out themes, revisiting Scripture ancient scripture in Genesis specifically, and and asking the question, is there anything worthy of our respect today in it, even if you may not call yourself a Christian or a religious person at all? Now, of course, I'm spending all this time on it because I think the answer to that question is yes, there is stuff to respect in scripture, but I'm trying to make the case for that as we step through these chapters. So, we ended the last episode partway just a little bit into chapter two of Genesis, and my plan is to finish chapter two of Genesis now. So um, last time we talked about this, uh, the confusion between Genesis chapter one and two, and then also this very interesting creation of the first uh, human or human person, earthling uh, Adam creature, which was in the dust, and it was a very intimate act of breathing from God into this person. So listen to that episode to get a little bit more of that unpacked. But we're going to pick up right after that, which happens in verse seven of chapter two, And now we're going to start in verse 8, which talks about the Lord God planting a garden in Eden. Very, very, very famous, well-known place, Eden. A lot of people know the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve is very popular stuff. But let's talk a little bit about it, because I think a lot of it gets misunderstood. So a quick note about this garden, this Eden place. There are several rivers named in the text, and um, people have spent a lot of energy maybe trying to find Eden, you know, or locate these rivers. We know, obviously, where the Tigris and the Euphrates are, uh, but again, I want to set kind of all of that stuff aside for a moment and just make the very simple point that the naming of these rivers very clearly places this account in what we would today call uh, Mesopotamia. And actually that word, Mesopotamia, if you break it down, actually literally means between the rivers. Meso means between. So uh, obviously this is kind of a Mesopotamian, ancient Near Eastern uh, account. That was just where it's located. So we don't really, I don't think, need to get much more specific than that to really understand what is happening in the story. The, the, The big point is not the geographical location. Although, I think it's worth respecting the writer's inclusion of the geographical locations, trying to locate uh, that this is in a place. So, one of the big points here, starting right out, is that this garden includes two very famous trees. You can read about this, and and a lot of people even know what they are. They're the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is, as with almost anything included in these stories, there's a ton that could be said about these trees the symbolic uh, value of them, what they mean, all all of this. And there will be more to say, especially as we get into chapter 3, but for now, I want to tease that bigger discussion with a simple question. Why those two trees? God is depicted as planting the garden, as, as being the driving force behind all of this, setting up and acting in this whole story. So why not, for example... The tree of life and the tree of death. That, you know, could make sense. Or maybe something like the tree of power. Or even simply the tree of good and evil. Why not the the tree of good and evil? Why do they have the names they have? Why is it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And why is it the tree of life? These are questions that when we just breeze through the story, when we feel like we're familiar with it, these are questions that are easy to forget to even ask. But what could be the point of these two trees specifically if God is the one creating this situation and putting humans into it? Why those two trees? I find that to be a fascinating question. And I don't want us to breeze over that because that's going to be a really, really important part of this story. And I think the names of these trees are very important to the narrative. So ponder that while we keep going through this. And the next point I want to make This is a really, really big one about this story. Huge in our culture right now is the question of gender. And gender starts to show up in the biblical account right around here. The last chapter, chapter one, only mentions gender in one specific line, and it is that men and women bear the image of God. That's gendered language. It's the first time it shows up, and I talked about that in the episodes on chapter 1. And so let's not forget the radical idea of the equality in that line again. But here, here we get a more detailed and interesting account of gender. And because again this is such a big deal in our cultural moment right now, it's really worth thinking about how these scriptures speak about male, female, man, and woman. So starting in verse 15, I think we see God's plan and God's hope for humans in this chapter. They are supposed to, quote, work and keep this garden, this Eden place. They are supposed to avoid eating from the knowledge of good and evil tree. Note that they can eat freely from the tree of life, or indeed anything else, and in fact they have plenty of what they need. God makes that very clear. But for now, note this very important detail, that it's in the context of the commands to work and to keep the garden It's in the context of those commands that God says, the very famous line, that it is not good for man to be alone. That's a very, very well-known line. I've heard it all the time. Maybe you've heard it quoted even in context outside of scripture or religious settings. But the commands, the order of the commands is very important here. And remember that the theme of order and chaos is the backdrop here. So, uh, order comes out of chaos. This place is created. Man is put in it. And then man is given commands to keep and to work the garden. That sounds like order language to me. Man is commanded to, in a sense, kind of keep that chaos. Like, God has started that process and put man in his position where man, bearing the divine image and this connection with the ground, as we talked about last time, has this awe-inspiring opportunity and responsibility to keep order in this place. Where chaos exists outside, man is order to work and to keep the garden. So so this is this is work language. This is not just be lazy. This is not just sit around in paradise and enjoy it and, you know, be fed grapes, you know, while you're lounging around. This is clearly not at all what is going on in Eden. Man is to work and to keep it and to to uh, to put forth effort. And this is a different version of paradise than I think what a lot of us have in our minds, but I actually think it's kind of an exciting one because the idea of working along with God to keep order... Uh, Again, without sin, without distortion, without power—all that stuff that that could mess up our ideas of work—that's not in the story yet. This is a good redemptive idea of working in this place that we've been given. We all love good, rewarding work, I think, and that's what's being accounted for here. But I just—I'm trying to make the very important point that it's in the context of work in keeping the garden, this ordering of this place that God says it's. Not good for man to be alone. And a quick side note is that only Adam or Adam actually hears this command from God. So stick a pin in that thought because it's going to affect the story later. Because I don't believe this idea that it's not good for man to be alone is just a sappy sentimental statement about loneliness or about romance or existential angst or anything like that, This is which is where you usually hear it said. There's a really practical edge to this, I think, that humans have a lot of work to do. Even from the very beginning. And it's not good to do our work alone. We're given a charge. We're given a command. Work this place that I've given you, says God. And we're not supposed to do it by ourselves. The need for a counterpart to the man is in that context, to have a good partner, to work together for this place to be ordered and for it to flourish. The Bible actually has a beautiful, high calling for gender partnership. That's a huge point that I want to make to our modern world, that the Bible in its first pages has a beautiful calling for gender partnership in which both genders bear the image of God radically equally. It's a big deal. And it's at that point here now, where it seems that the animals are created. Again, don't worry about the whole continuity thing with chapter one. We talked about that in the last episode. It's very confusing. Just look at the text as it is right now in chapter two. Don't get hung up on the overture zoomed out themes. We're zoomed in now. We're looking at the story. All that can make you miss the point. Um, because I think uh, there's actually some light humor going on here. So picture this. God says it's not for good for you to be alone to the man, to Adam. You need a helper to do all of this work. Then all these animals and birds show up, and it's almost as if they are paraded before Adam as he is naming them. Time doesn't permit for a discussion about the act of naming right now, although that's a hugely important ancient uh, concept is the, the power of naming. But set that aside, this parade of animals and naming is happening in the context of Adam looking for a helper. And verse 20 says, but there was no suitable helper. You can imagine uh, Adam looking at all these animals and naming them, um, but there wasn't any partner for him in this parade. You could say it's another affirmation of the fundamental difference between humans and animals, which I talked about last time. So now Adam is put to sleep and very famously his rib is removed. Rib, by the way, isn't quite, doesn't quite capture it. We think of a little piece of bone. Uh, the Hebrew there is more like his, his side, like a section out of his side is, uh, removed. So, um, and, and this is, this is where we get this idea of human partnership. Um, Plato actually tells his own version of the creation of humans in a similar way, because he says that humans were split in half from their counterparts. We were kind of these weird, like, hybrid two-person creations, and then we were split in half, and our romantic longings are for our other half that we were split from. So, we can't go into that, time doesn't permit, but I just want to make the point that we don't sneer at Plato's writings like that, so let's not sneer at the biblical account, please. So anyways, Adam's side is kind of pulled out of him while he's asleep. He wakes up, and upon seeing this creation that was pulled out of his side. He says, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. At last, my words here, there is someone I see who can be my counterpart. This isn't an animal. This is someone like me, someone who can keep and work the garden with me. And this is where gender first shows up in our story. It's actually a very strong affirmation of the joining and partnership of men and women in the work that God would have them do in the world together. There isn't, so far, any whisper of, quote, different roles that they are assigned to or different roles they are supposed to play. Nothing like that. It's just that they are created to work together. And, in fact, it is not good for them to not partner. And this, I think, is building off of the image-bearing scene we noted in chapter one. I think it's remarkable. I think it's beautiful. And finally, I'll end on this. The chapter ends with a note about marriage and a note about shame. The man, it says, he will leave his family and become one with the woman. This is the foundational statement of the Judeo-Christian ethic of marriage and joining in marriage. And I will add to this uh, that this is a powerful statement here at the end of them being naked and without shame. Shame is a very powerful animating force in human existence in our world today, even on a psychological level. Everyone understands this. And the idea of being naked or exposed fully to the other, that is what nakedness means here. Being exposed fully to the other, fully vulnerable, fully available, and doing that without shame is stirring. That is stirring to me. And the scriptures are making the case here that this is precisely how we, men and women, are meant to be with each other. Without shame. Working together in beautiful partnership for the high calling of working towards the flourishing of our planet. This is a vision for humanity that is worth respecting. Thanks for listening. For more information, you can check out the podcast page at joelwentz.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joel the valiant, And of course, you can subscribe to 10-Minute Theology on iTunes. Take care.